Good morning and welcome back to Rising. I'm excited to be here today with Sher Michael Singleton, who is filling in for Amber Athey. Sher Michael, it's nice to see you. It is nice to see you, Jess. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us what we're about to hear today. So we'll discuss the historic shutdown of Hollywood following the Actors Union's decision uh, to the striking film, television, and writers. And Tucker Carlson is launching his own media company. We will weigh in on that as well. All right, but first, lawyers for Hunter Biden have sent cease and desist letters to Donald Trump, alleging the presidential candidate's statements could lead to harm or injury for Hunter Biden's family. According to reporting by ABC News, the cease and desist order says, in part, we're just one social media message away from another incident. Mr. Trump's words have caused harm in the past and threatened to do so again if he does not stop. Earlier this week, Donald Trump took to Truth Social and slammed prosecutors for their deal with Hunter Biden on tax charges, saying, in part, Weiss is a coward. He gave out a traffic ticket instead of a death sentence. Hunter Biden pled guilty to two counts of willful failure to pay taxes as part of the deal. He agreed to be charged, but not prosecuted for purchasing a handgun during the time he was using drugs. Biden also paid out more than $200,000 in taxes. The deal infuriated Republicans who alleged the president's son received special treatment. The DOJ is pushing back on those claims, saying the U.S. attorney had complete control over the case. So this has devolved into quite a mess, and mm -hmm. it turns out that no one's happy, which is an unsurprising result. Sure, Michael, what do you make of it all? I mean, look, I have to tell you, as someone with a ton of firearms, I own a production company that specializes in action-oriented and firearms-related content. And I can tell you, if a regular person, Jess, did what Hunter Biden did, they would be facing at least three to five years in federal prison. The only reason the president's son isn't going to prison is because he's the president's son. And I don't think anyone has to guess about that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I would say this is nothing new. And I think a lot of folks, you know, on the right right now are quite upset saying this is something that's exclusive to Democrats or exclusive to the Biden family. But in the United States for quite some time, any powerful family with ties to multinational corporations or otherwise is pretty much protected when it comes to facing uh, any kind of accountability for actions that other citizens in the United States that are not members of powerful or elite families would be persecuted for, would face the maximum sentence for. And so it feels like nothing new, but it does feel like there's a bit of a fire under Republicans right now. And I would like to see some kind of precedent set to prevent this kind of corruption from happening in our justice system in the future across the board. And I'm not sure that that's a likely outcome of this because it I seems mean, to me that not. they're just happy the Biden family is facing some kind of accountability here. I mean, look, Jess, let, let's think about this scenario. If it were Donald yeah. Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, the mainstream media conglomerates would have a field day persecuting Trump, going out to Republicans saying, this is why you have to get rid of them from the White House. You have to get rid of them from power because there was a consistent pattern, right, of questionable ethical behavior, questionable legal behavior. But it's Hunter Biden. So we're going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to ignore it. We're going to ignore him driving 170 plus miles an hour in his Porsche with a crack pipe in his hand. We're going to ignore all of those things because he happens to be the son of the president that we like. The hypocrisy in that is why so many Americans don't trust the mainstream media on the left or the right, because they believe that they're more interested in peddling a narrative that they want versus telling the American people the truth. And that's a problem.
Yeah, I think the the only major difference between the Trump family and the Biden family is that we had Ivanka as a, an, an advisor uh, mm-hmm. to the president. We had Jared Kushner in a cabinet position and even Eric Trump being involved. And so Don Jr. as well. You had a lot of the, the children actually deeply involved in the administration in a way that Hunter Biden is not. However, I would like to see similar accountability for Jared Kushner's dealing with Saudi families, Saudi royalty, Saudi corporations. Uh, If we're going to hold Hunter Biden accountable, I think we should absolutely be holding the Trumps accountable as well. But the mainstream media's failure to report on corruption as a whole and what the elite families in the United States are doing, I think is really telling. And I think it is absolutely what sows distrust in not only mainstream media, uh, but the FBI and the DOJ as well. Their inability to hold people who are powerful accountable, I think, means people will trust our Department of Justice a lot less. I think it's why a lot of people are not trustworthy uh, of the FBI or don't see the FBI as a trustworthy entity, given that they didn't investigate a lot of the whistleblower complaints when it came to the Biden family's dealings with Burisma. And so all of these things, I think, are exactly what sows mistrust in our media and our politics. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that leads them to think, well, we haven't been held accountable in the past. The public doesn't trust us anyway, so we might as well continue business as usual. I mean, look, we are pawns in their game, and they're pulling the strings. And I think about the quote from uh, the comedian uh, George Carlin, who's no longer with us, and he said, "If uh, it's the American dream, because you'd have to be asleep to actually believe it. And I think for so many Americans, that quote, as cynical and comical as it may have been, there's a lot of truth into what he said. And I, and I think when you, you look at whether it's Hunter Biden or the children of the former president, uh, Donald Trump, A lot of people do ask themselves, if I were in this position or if my kids did something similar or if I did something similar, would I have the same level of justice as these individuals who belong to the wealthiest and most powerful in our country? And the honest answer to that question is no. And so I agree with you in terms of having some level of consistency in terms of how we pursue justice. But I have to say this, Hunter Biden, and we know this from the whistleblower reports, have made tons of money from his father when he was vice president and more than likely is still making money today while his father's president. Where is the media's attention on that? Why aren't they focusing on that? You brought up Jared Kushner. There have been so much focus, Jess, on Jared Kushner, so much focus on Ivanka. Again, with Hunter Biden, you do not see that same level of consistency. Right. I think what I'm interested in is you have Republicans like James Comer and Chuck Grassley saying Mm -hmm. a lot about what was exposed in the House Oversight Committee, which, you know, the Democrats on that committee said that they didn't want all of the documents to be public. And that's fine. But it allowed Chuck Grassley to go on television every night and speak in uh, anything but absolutes to say that it's very likely we're seeing this. We see something along the lines of this and not really making clear that there's any concrete evidence that Hunter Biden did, in fact, get those $5 million payments from Burisma. And so it put people in this situation where any outcome of what the the case would be, what he pled guilty to and what the deal would ultimately be, it's going to seem like a lot less when you have someone like Chuck Grassley on mainstream television basically saying they have a smoking gun. And then ultimately, this is a deal that's made with lawyers when it comes to the Hunter Biden case. And so the way all of that played out, I think, 
was really unfavorable for the Biden family and Democrats. I think in the interest of democracy, they should have made very clear that this is going to go down in a similar way to other corruption cases have gone down when you've had Congress investigate, which is we'll disclose everything that we have at the end of the case. And we're not saying anything until then. Chuck Grassley going on mainstream media and hinting at what they found mm-hmm. evidence wise, I think made this a bigger mess than it needed to be. I mean, look, that's a fair point. But I got to tell you this, Wesley Snipes, Jess, wishes his father was Joe Biden. So, Jess, what about Trump's statements and on their face, you believe Hunter Biden is saying that are so dangerous? I mean, what do you think? Because he's going after Trump. You have his lawyers tweeting or following a cease and desist. But this guy's a presidential candidate. So what do they expect here? I'm, I couldn't speak to what they expect here. I think the Trump family uh, being outraged about the Biden case is kind of rich. It's kind of throwing <laughs> stones in glass houses. I think Trump has honestly gotten off easy. I think Merrick Garland could have prosecuted him and pressed charges, you know, day one in office for Trump inciting an insurrection. So I would like to see, you know, justice applied to any family that uses their power in a way that is bad for the American people. But that's not the DOJ that we have. And it goes both ways. And so when I think about the Biden family and what's going down here, yeah, I think Hunter Biden absolutely needs to be further investigated. Mm -hmm. And we actually need some real justice brought about here for the corruption with Burisma. But I think what's going on is they've said that they've found the ties and they've been able to follow that money. But I don't think they really have as much as Chuck Grassley has led them to believe uh, or has led all of the American people to believe. And so I'd really like to see more prosecution on that. The handgun case and Hunter Biden using drugs, I could care less about. But when it comes to corruption and heads of state and their families, including with multinational corporations, that's the corruption I'm really interested in them passing some legislation to prevent. Well, look, I'll throw this out quickly, Jess. If it's your child, what would you do? If it were you, what would you do? We'll have more rising right after this. The Hollywood Actors Union has gone on strike after negotiations to reach a new contract with production studios ended in no agreement. The 160,000-member union will join writers in the first industry-wide walkout in 63 years. According to Yahoo News, the strike began Thursday at midnight, and the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, tweeted a blank black photo and wrote, 12.01 a.m. Pacific time, that's a wrap. SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America have been on strike since May 2nd. Major points of the strike have included pay and artificial intelligence. Concerns were based on a proposal surrounding AI. The proposal was centered on the ability for background actors to be scanned and get paid for one day's pay and for the company to, quote, own the scan for their image, their likeness, and to be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent or compensation, according to the Rolling Stone. SAG President Fran Drescher said during a press conference after the union board's unanimous vote to strike, this is a moment of history, a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we're all going to be in trouble. We're all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business, not Yahoo News rights. Actor Matt Damon and Emily Blunt reportedly left the opening of the premiere of their film, Oppenheimer, as they prepared to join the strike. 
So Jess, this is interesting to me because we've had a lot of conversations lately about ChatGPT, Google's Bard, and whether or not these AIs will at some point have a significant impact on everyday workers. And I think we're sort of seeing the early iteration of this with some of the writers. Yeah, I, I think we are. I think the writer standing up uh, sounds right to me. I think their demands are very realistic. CEO Bob Iger of Disney was on television doing an interview saying that, you know, the workers' demands are not realistic. And then when asked to point to what demands are not realistic and why, he said, I can't answer that. And this seems to me to be classic exploitation. And when it comes to creative endeavors, I think a lot of people are questioning how much AI can actually replace a human being and writing. I think the the AI being developed and the computing power and the algorithms uh, being developed by humans suggests that we can credit labor for all of its productivity. So to say that this is something that can replace labor in some kind of production function where you want to say, actually, it wasn't the workers that contributed to this result of us having this perfectly polished script that we can now polish off of. I'm just not buying it. It's all labor. It always has been. Now, the writers have been put in a really tough position where the corporations pretty much own their intellectual property when they work for them. Uh, the corporations also when it comes to the actors and the media companies and the executives also are owning the rights and likeness to the actors that are in their films. It's an unfair setup to have these executives and these companies own the rights to what workers are producing while they're on the clock. It's just not a fair setup to me. So I think pushing back on that is right and fair and realistic, especially when you consider how things are changing with streaming platforms. You mm -hmm. used to have writers work on a project for an extended period of time. Now they're much shorter projects and people are worried about paying their bills while all of these production companies are profiting in the hundreds and sometimes billions, hundreds of millions and billions. It's, it's really an insane amount of money that they're making off of these writers' work. I mean, Jess, for eternity. And I'm just looking at you know, some of the quotes here to own your, your creativity for eternity. I mean, it, it's a bit insane to me. I mean, you have guitars in your background. I'm a piano player. And I think many artists would like to create something, whether it's musical or whether it's in written form. And once they pass on the hope, the idea is that their family would be able to still benefit from that. Similarly to someone who created a major successful company, they would put in place for the benefits of that company in perpetuity to continue to benefit their family and whomever else they chose. And so I agree with the writers on this. I mean, I, I think these guys are, are not getting paid well. They're working long, long hours. I used to live in Hollywood. I worked briefly for a major entity out there whose name I, I won't say because they're a part of this. And I can tell you, I was blown away coming from the political world, going into that Hollywood world, realizing these guys are really the foundation of every single show that we enjoy, every movie we enjoy. Shouldn't they be compensated fairly for doing so? And I think to ask that question is merely reasonable. Yeah, whose who's labor do you value more as the consumer? Are you really yeah. happy about the executive's decision to make scary movie, what is it, five, to make so many remakes of movies we've all seen instead of having writers 
give their new ideas some kind of, I don't know, chance at doing well when it comes to showing movies, when it comes to pursuing a script. It's so often that these production companies don't want to take the financial risk to try something new. And us as the consumer, we keep getting repeats of things we've seen before, live action versions of old hits. We want to see new stuff. We want mm -hmm. the writers to have a chance to have their create creative ideas put out there for all of us. And also when I think about, you know, writers writing the entire episode of a show, do I care more that the production company is able to put it out and put the financial backing behind it? Or do I care about the actual script and what the writers are literally creating yeah. themselves? Without the writers, there is nothing. The production companies can't produce a show without yep. the creative input. It's literally everything. So if you're a consumer, you should be in solidarity with these workers because you're getting better shows. And hopefully you're making it very clear to the production companies what your priority is as a consumer because also without the consumers, there's no production company. And so it's really a time for consumers to be in solidarity with workers here, especially because the value of the products at stake, not just working conditions for the workers uh, who are, you know, whether they're Hollywood actors or they're writers, because now we have the whole industry on strike. I mean, look, as I said, the writers are the foundation. You can't build a home without a solid foundation. As Jess just stated, you can't have a great movie, a great sitcom, a great series without the writers. And I think this goes to that question of, do you want to be paid fairly for your work? I'm, I'm certain you want to, so shouldn't the writers be paid fairly for theirs? Jess, you're right, we need to stand behind the writers because if we want to continue to see great series, then we need them back on the job, but they should be paid for the work that they're putting out. So for any Black Mirror fans out there, you might find this groundbreaking AI proposal referenced in the SAG press conference yesterday as a literal plot of the season six episode titled, Joan is Awful, Sorry for the Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm a big Black Mirror fan, Jess, and I have to tell you, when you think about Black Mirror and, and, and sort of its pun, if you will, on reality, you really do see some parallels to what the writers are, are currently going through. Right, absolutely. Technology and its advancements have been a, a disaster for the human race, some would say. There's a lot of scary stuff when you really take things to the extreme, logically, of, of what technology could do for us. I also am thinking about the strategy of the executives right now during this strike to be to essentially ice the writers and actors out, to wait until they can't pay rent anymore, until mm -hmm. they can't afford food, and then they'll be forced into another bad and exploitative deal. That puts us in the in the same position they started with. And yeah. it's cruel. It doesn't make any sense. But it shows that their strategy in the long run with AI replacing writers is simply the workers are expendable. We don't need them. Let's also recognize that the way AI works is they take in the creative works created by people, created by Hollywood writers, mm -hmm. and they say, what would a similar work be given the inputs I've given based on all of the inputs I have, which is all of the creative work ever made. They're, the AI is not independent of human creativity. It's actually taking it all in and as inputs and putting out something that is similar based on everything it's already seen. And so when you think about that, it's actually all of the Hollywood writers that are that are producing these things. And is the computer better at putting it together than a human brain? It seems that a lot of these writers think not. I mean, look, I, I think about the character Joanne from Black Mirror, a fascinating character. And I'm not certain, Jess, that ChatGPT could write a script 
that could be interpreted that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in the next five years, we will eventually get there. Uh, but there's currently a pending lawsuit right now from some writers who are suing OpenAI because what they're alleging is that OpenAI, the company that owns ChatGPT, literally used their books without their consent, without paying them, to sort of reinforce the AI's ability to do it exactly what you just said, which is to respond to prompts with some type of written response. And so this goes into a more fundamental question here, Jess, should people be paid if these companies are going to use the materials that they produced in order to build out the background of these AIs? And I think the answer to that question is simply yes. If, if I'm producing something as a producer, you can't just steal my material without some type of commensurate pay. Yeah, absolutely. I wish we could dig into this more, but we've got to wrap here. Our AI overlords are telling us that we can't talk <laughs> about this anymore. It's in the script. <laughs> more rising up. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has lost some momentum among voters in his bid for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination, and now conservative media appears to be growing cool. DeSantis is facing criticism from the right-leaning media who are questioning his weaker poll numbers and also about his campaign in general. According to the latest Real Clear Politics polling average, DeSantis is trailing GOP frontrunner former President Donald Trump by double digits. And with the first GOP primary debate just around the corner next month, some say it might be a make-or-break moment for the Florida governor. For more, joining us now is Noah Rothman, senior writer at National Review, who spent a lot of time reflecting and writing on both Trump and Biden. Noah, thanks for joining us. So, Noah, I want to just jump right into this. Three months ago, everybody had this idea and belief that this was going to be Ron DeSantis's moment. He was going to raise a lot of money, he was going to hit the ground hard and heavy, and there would be a lot of excitement to follow. Well, he left Florida, he went to Ohio, he went to New York, it didn't go so well. Then he traveled across the country, it didn't go so well. And now we're finding ourselves asking, Noah, is this a Jeb Bush or a Scott Walker moment 2.0? And that's certainly what it seems like. Well, if it, he certainly did raise a lot of money. He has enough money to test the proposition that he can or cannot win delegates when we actually have the votes in, in January of 2024. So if, is he a Scott Walker or a Jeb Bush? He's definitely not a Scott Walker. He's not going to be gone in September, which is when Scott Walker dropped out. He could be a Jeb Bush, but he's appealing to a very different idea of the Republican electorate than, than Jeb Bush had. Jeb Bush was appealing to a particular sort of Republican who elected uh, John McCain and Mitt Romney, um, not necessarily a moderate conservative, but a conservative voter, but not necessarily one who was in the activist class. Ron DeSantis seems to believe that his energy comes from the activist class. And in my mind, there's a bit of a misreading of what the activist class is in, in Ron DeSantis's conception. Maybe he genuinely believes some of the things he believes. But for example, let's take foreign policy. Ukraine as an issue, which I don't think is really a big voting issue for Republicans, but it's nevertheless one that exposes deep rifts within the coalition. And what Ron DeSantis is saying is, I'm skeptical of foreign engagements, and maybe we should have some more humility and perhaps even retrench a little bit. That is not what Donald Trump is saying. That may be what his vote, his base vote believes, but what Donald Trump says, applying this evaluate him seriously, not literally meant, you know, uh, approach to this, that framework, 
he says he can end the war on day one. That's a very foolish thing to say. But he's what he's saying there is not let's retrench, let's be humble, let's uh, focus on the on the real conflicts in the future in China. He's saying we need a muscular, extroverted presence on the world stage, a TR negotiating big deals abroad. That's the sort of message that does appeal to conservative Republicans, both of the more activist stripe and more conventional conservative stripe. That is not a, a, a typical voter that Ron DeSantis' message is appealing to, which makes me wonder if he has his finger on the pulse of the base as much as the people around him appear to think they do. Yeah, Noah, I'm curious because we see the poll numbers showing Ron DeSantis not performing as well as many people expected or as many or he's not performing as well as I think even his camp expected, giving his strong performance early on. I think you pay very close attention to this. I'm curious your thoughts as to why he's not polling well. We've seen him really attack Donald Trump from the right pointing out his support of LGBTQ folks in the past, sending out mailers in Iowa, pointing out Donald Trump's support of the LGBTQ plus community in the past. But also we see that the data shows that jobs in the economy are the number one issue for a lot of voters. And I haven't seen DeSantis really center his campaign around that, but I also haven't really seen any candidate in the GOP center their campaign around that. What do you make of the dip in poll numbers for DeSantis? Well, I think that point that you made about um, focusing on uh, bread and butter issues, pocketbook issues, is a real Republican strength that Republicans themselves do not emphasize. And uh, my colleague Charlie Cook over at National Review has written about this recently very uh, cogently, and I think that's something that Republicans should take to heart. But at this stage of the campaign, I don't necessarily believe that's where Ron DeSantis is. Trouble lies. Ron DeSantis has established for himself a record, an admirable record of, co of competency and almost con a conservative version of, uh, of being a technocrat in office, the ca capability to wield the levers of government to deliver for you real results. But his personality is a little bit prickly. And for better or worse, Republican voters really genuinely like Donald Trump as a person. Maybe they have problems with his policy. Maybe they have a lot of problems, I think, in fact, with uh, the way he comports himself and how he trips all over his own feet just by virtue of his own personal failings. But he's an entertaining figure. He's the sort of guy that they enjoy being in a room with. I don't necessarily think Ron DeSantis has the capacity to project that kind of affect, not necessarily warmth per se, but certainly a, a, a level of personal gravitas that Ron DeSantis just frankly lacks. Now, can he overcome that? Absolutely, these are far too early days. And when he's in the limelight and when the focus is really on Donald Trump, as it may hopefully will be in the event that he actually decides to debate somebody, that dynamic could very well change. Um, but Ron DeSantis is not broken out of the pack in part because in my view, he hasn't distinguished himself from exactly from what from the kind of personality type that Republicans believe they need, they think they need somebody who's going to break things, who's going to frustrate the ambitions of, of progressives, not just in policy terms, but in 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 cultural terms, which are distinct entirely from legislative affairs. Uh, Ron DeSantis has every opportunity to change this dynamic. There's a lot of game left to be played, but he lacks that very central feature of winning. Republican political campaigns that he may not be able to overcome.
I mean, no, no I just what... want to quickly follow up on that. Uh, when it comes to job in, jobs in the economy, you say DeSantis is a candidate that's really proven to deliver for his constituents, for the people in Florida. What policies or actions would you point to? I would say um, property reform, for example, one of the property insurance reform, rather, which is one of these really like under the radar issues that contributed to his 20 point margin of victory in 2022. Similarly, environmentalist issues. Um, the sort of stuff that uh, threads the needle and manages to, it's its its not sexy, it doesn't generate headlines, but it's the sort of thing that makes moderate voters, independent voters, and even centrist Democrats say, well, you know, I don't really like the way the guy pounds the table. I don't really like his personal vision for the future. But man, he's actually delivered a few things that have made my life better and have a, an appeal to me in ways that don't make me embarrassed by the other stuff. Um, that's the sort of thing that, has contributed to his the assumption here that he is a, a very competent governor who can deliver for his constituencies by not tripping over himself on all the other stuff by not getting you know dragged down in the minutia he's not all disney i mean disney is the sort of thing that that everybody who's outside florida thinks is the is the beginning middle and end of this governorship it's not even remotely close if you speak to an actual floridian um and this is sort of a beltway myopia thing but this is these and these are early days and we'll get the chance to start talking about policy versus, uh, you know, versus personality and achievements on the debate stage. Uh, so, again, too early to say, but those are his strengths and he's not emphasizing his strengths. What he's emphasizing is his, his vision for the country as he sees it, which isn't really distinct enough from Donald Trump's vision to be a, a fulcrum in this race. I mean, no, you, you mentioned policy. And when you look at something like, let's say, banning certain types of books, you look at abortion, the six-week ban that came out of Florida, it is very clear by every metric, every survey, this stuff does not register well with most Americans. Look at Wisconsin, with the Supreme Court case with, uh, or the Supreme Court race, rather, state Supreme Court race with Janet Protasiewicz, the Democrat, ousted the Republican. You look at another state like Kansas, where a majority of the districts that voted for Donald Trump for presidency voted with Democrats to not allow a, a stricter, more firmer abortion ban. So, so when, when I look at policies, I, I ask myself as a strategist, does this guy have policy positions that can resonate with suburban voters, uh, suburban women, with swing voters who may look at this and say, yeah, I like some of the economic stuff, but I don't want someone telling me as a woman what to do with my body. How does he get over that hurdle? Because Trump has taken a different approach to this. While he granted appointed many of the justices to the Supreme Court, he said, wait a minute here. It's up to the states to determine what they want to do on abortion. He's trying to walk that, that fine line that DeSantis has said, oh, no, absolutely not. Six-week ban and maybe even a national ban. That will not play well, Noah, with the national audience. Well, no, most certainly not. But, Chair Michael, at the risk of uh, offending my hosts here, I would challenge some of your premises there. <laughs> uh, the notion here that we have a quote-unquote book ban is just frankly the wrong terminology to use. What has happened on the state level with particularly in Republican states is the de-emphasization and removal from the curricula or removal from certain shelves in a library, not a ban of certain books. And I would challenge Democrats who think that this is an excessive policy to look at the material in these books and read them. And Republicans will absolutely help them along or perhaps even show some of the illustrations. 
many of which are extremely sexually explicit and inappropriate for children. I would challenge Democrats to defend that material, and I think Republicans will as well. Likewise, I, as much as I do agree with you that Republicans should stray close to the finding in the majority opinion in Dobbs and say that this is a state-level issue and the states should experiment, and we shouldn't have any sort of a federal standard. Republicans are probably benefit from having a uniform line on this sort of thing. And I do think six weeks is perhaps unpalatable for much of the, the national electorate, although it varies at the state level. But is this an obstacle to Republican victories at the statewide level? Not in Brian Kemp's case, who, re who rode to victory in Georgia with a six-week ban in place. Um, likewise, in the, in the Supreme Court uh, fight in the upper Midwest, um, you could say that this is abortion played a role there, and I do. But did it play as much as a role as the uh, as the candidate, the Republican candidate there? Their support for Ron, or Donald Trump's rather absurd narratives about a stolen election in 2020. And the common through line, if you really look at it, is the stolen election narrative, which really is the one that is the issue that hobbles Republicans. Is a six-week ban popular? No. Is it a surmountable obstacle to electoral victories at the state and federal level? Absolutely. So we have a lot of folks in Iowa, I think, very concerned that farmers insurance has just left Florida. We've seen premiums soar up to 206 percent since DeSantis became governor. I think, you know, he did make property a, a focus and pass some legislation in May of 2022. A lot of folks are, are blaming DeSantis for more than half a dozen insurers leaving this state. Do you think that could be something hurting his poll numbers, especially in a state like Iowa that relies a lot on farming and has been struggling with flooding in, in recent months and years? Possible. That's a, a relatively niche issue, but one that would be very, that Iowa's farmers would be particularly attuned to. Uh, I don't know if that's an obstacle to his uh, managing to engineer a victory in Iowa, especially since Donald Trump seems to be intent on sabotaging his campaign in Iowa and has managed to win the presidency beforehand. So we're with, with losing Iowa in 2016. So it's not as though he doesn't see a pathway to the nomination without Iowa. Um, but insurance, uh, the, the complexities of, ins of insurance uh, are something that I think probably will hurt if they can be mobilized by another candidate. So, for example, California is suffering from a very similar condition. Assurers, insurers rather, are fleeing the state in droves in response to both environmental conditions and hopelessly uh, consumer uh, anti-consumer regulations that make insurance an unprofitable proposition in the golden state. Now, is that something that is going to be uh, brought up by the national media? Is that something that is going to register with, with voters? No, unless a clever candidate can thread the needle and explain why X policy has led to your Y higher premium. Um, that's an open, an open avenue for one of Ron DeSantis' uh, challengers, if they were to take it. But it requires a fair bit of exposition. You have to explain that. And that's not necessarily something that candidates are going to want to engage in unless there's you know, a lot of groundwork done there. If we start seeing, for example, 30 second ads on uh, Iowa television from the Tim Scott campaign or the Haley campaign trying to ding DeSantis on that issue, I would be I would say that, yeah, that's probably a, a significant uh, issue, but it is not popped right now. All right, Noah, well, we appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back with more action after this. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, the world's largest contract chip maker, will import 
more than 500 migrant workers from Taiwan to help the company build its new facility in Phoenix, Arizona. According to Nikai Asia, the construction of the plant has fallen behind schedule, quote, due to labor shortages and other factors. And the company has reportedly said construction costs have surpassed expectations. Reporter at the American Prospect, Lee Harris, tweeted in response to this situation a few weeks ago, writing, in the South, semiconductor firms expecting billions in federal tax cuts and grants are refusing to partner with unions to train workers. Instead, arguing that the U.S. lacks a skilled workforce. Can you believe that? Chip giant TSMC is importing migrant labor. At least two construction workers have reportedly died at Arizona's TSMC fabrication facility, the American Prospect writes. Reporter at the American Prospect, Lee Harris, joins us now to discuss further on her reporting. Lee, this is really fascinating to me. You have a company that's potentially going to retrieve billions of dollars in tax subsidies from the taxpayers. We're paying for this stuff. And yet they're importing workers versus using workers there because, according to them, U.S. workers aren't, quote, skilled enough. Do, do you buy into this? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting problem. Um, it, it's, it's kind of been fascinating. I went to Phoenix, and it's been very interesting to watch this extraordinarily successful company come in and hit up against the realities of the American labor market, which I think to, to sort of half speak to TSMC's point, relies heavily on untrained temp workers and staffing agencies whose business model is treating workers as dispensable. So it's true that they've had a number of problems with the staffing strategy that they've chosen for their site in Phoenix. Uh, but I think that's partly because they've uh, they've chosen not to go the union path and instead and have refused to re design a project labor agreement or, or an agreement with a pre-hire agreement with local labor groups. So just to back up a little bit and give you some context, uh, the funding here is coming from the Chips and Science Act passed uh, last August, which contained $52 billion uh, in subsidies for, for U.S. semiconductor foundries. That's still not gone out the door. The Commerce Department is right now in the process of choosing where to spend the money. And they put out a public guidance document incentivizing, encouraging companies to work with local, local labor groups and to outline their workforce plan. So I went to Phoenix for my reporting to figure out what things have actually looked like at this 12,000 worker job site uh, that's employing hundreds of subcontractors. Now, because it's this enormous and complicated job site, it can be hard to confirm specific injuries. But I in interviewed workers uh, who told me about really grueling problems that they've faced uh, at this site. Uh, first of all, uh, according to the president of the Arizona Building Trades Council, at least two construction workers have died on this site. Uh, one who was using a, a grinder and, and um, uh, suffered an, an injury to his femoral artery and another who died of an overdose. Um, workers described loads of steel being dropped from cranes, several injuries from falls, uh, including a man who fell 30 feet through improperly marked flooring. Uh, one person told me he, um, uh, that that man broke ribs and damaged his spleen. So it's, uh, by the accounts I heard, been a really challenging job site to work on. Now to zoom out a little bit and look at the, the recruiting and workforce component and some of TSMC's complaints, um, it's been surprising to find these things since President Biden had visited the site uh, and, and bragged that it was being, quote, built union. <laughs> uh, but that's misleading. While there are a couple uh, union contractors on the site, uh, the, the ma large majority of workers are non-union contractors. So to come back to that work workforce component and 
TSMC's complaints here, it's interesting that TSMC is simultaneously complaining that American workers are expensive and incompetent and then also strongly opposing unions. Um, I, I want to get in in a second to why uh, it may make less sense to use non-unionized workers, but I'll stop for a second there. That's actually exactly what I was going to ask about. In the United States, it seems that that's our only protection against these really unfair and dangerous labor practices. We don't have a lot of regulations that protect workers outside of workers who decide to form a union and negotiate for those protections. So can you just say more about what the workers are feeling and what your sense is about them deciding intentionally to hire non-union workers and also to bring in 500 plus migrant workers? For sure. Like you said, unions are about worker protections. They're also about training a skilled workforce. And in Arizona, so a key part of a chip foundry, which is what TSMC is trying to build here, is called a clean room. It has to be kept extraordinarily clean, even as it's being built in the middle of the desert, because chips can be ruined by one speck of dust, by tiny impurities. So to keep the clean rooms sanitary as they're being built, TSMC brought in ABM Industries, which is a huge staffing company that also staffs Amazon warehouses. And it's it's notorious for illegal labor practices. It's faced dozens of lawsuits over wage theft. As of 2018, they had paid fines and settlements and settlements in 43 lawsuits uh, for illegal labor practices. And since then, they've faced several more. Uh, they had to pay $140 million to settle a class action lawsuit brought by janitors in California who said they were owed wages. So anyway, that's who that's that's who they've brought in to staff this plant. I interviewed uh, ABM workers on the site, including a janitor who told me that she's been consistently underpaid. Her checks are just being made out at the wrong hourly rate, and her colleagues are facing similar pay issues. And when I contacted ABM, they admitted that they've had, quote, technical issues uh, paying team members at this site. So this is the sort of contractor that TSMC is bringing in and then expecting to do competent work while exploiting workers. Just to give one other example, uh, workers told me that non-union contractors have also caused big setbacks, partly due to their lack of training. Um, I, was, I was given the example of a non-union crew of pipe fitters who they'd installed a big piece of 72-inch pipe and ran water through it. And then when they went to drain the pipe, they forgot to add a vent, basically creating a vacuum. So if you're a union pipe fitter, this is a really obvious mistake. You would be taught about this as a first year union apprentice, but clearly the workers hadn't been taught about this. So the pipe collapsed. It was like sucking the air out of a plastic bottle. And uh, and apart from you know being risky, um, uh, it led to significant delays. So, to bring it back to TSMC's strategy, um, they're now complaining that it's really hard to build things in America, that it's impossible to work with American workers. Unions in the area are outraged because they want a project labor agreement, you know, a guarantee that the company will hire them so they can move ahead on training up hundreds of workers to staff this site. But instead, TSMC's moved in the opposite direction and said, you know what, uh, we're gonna work with the government to get uh, permits to fly in hundreds of our own workers, because we simply find American workers to be impossible to work with. And, and, and the most kind of outrageous thing is that uh, this has become a strategy to tell uh, the Department of Commerce, actually, we need more money. We need more money from chips because we can't work with American workers. Um, we're, it, it, uh, as I said, um, it's too costly. 
to build things in this country. And so you'll need to support us um, at even higher levels. I mean, so look, Lee, we're talking about 15 billion in credits. Now, the Department of Commerce, and I saw in your article, they declined to comment on this. No surprise there. But you, you, you point out something I think is really fascinating here. If you go with unionized workers, we know that they're going to have all of the qualifications necessary, but it's going to cost more. They can demand more, such as safe work conditions, which you also mentioned. Now, when you think about the migrant workers, legally, they can't lawfully make the same demands. So do you think this is a, a matter of U.S. workers not being proficient or the company saying, we just don't want to spend more money, we don't want to deal with having to have safer work requirements, we would rather fly in some folks, let them do the job. If they complain, it's no big deal. We can pay them less money, and then we send them back home. I think it's a classic story in which our broken immigration system um, exploits workers, you know, to the advantage of multinational companies in in Sunbelt states who are who who make it harder for uh, for undocumented workers or for workers who who only have work visas, you know, at the pleasure of the company that employs them, make it harder for them to organize. So so the unions I spoke to in Arizona, their biggest issue with the fact that these workers are being flown in is number one, that that um, unions right there in Arizona, workers right there in Arizona aren't being trained up. But also, once these people come in, uh, they're much harder to organize in any kind of pushback against the company because they're only there at, at, at special request by TSMC. Thank you for this good reporting, Lee Harris, and for coming on and breaking down this really important issue with us. Thanks so much for having me on. Despite the summer heat, inflation numbers cooled down in June. Inflation slowed to 3% last month, falling from the 4% annual rate in May of this year. According to the New York Times, the June number is just a third of its, quote, roughly 9% peak last summer. Inflation is dropping largely due to declines in gas prices, according to the New York Times. The core index, which does not include food and fuel costs, climbed 4.8%, down from 5.3% in the year through May, the New York Times reports. The White House celebrated these new numbers, and President Joe Biden said in a statement yesterday, good jobs, lower costs, that's Bidenomics in action. Professor of Economics at Bard College and Director of the Economic Democracy Initiative, Pavlina Chernova, joins us now to discuss. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. So I have a quick question for you as we, as we hop into this. Now, we know Jerome Powell just testified before Congress, and he stated, quote, inflation has moderated somewhat since the middle of last year. Nonetheless, inflation pressures continue to run high through the process of getting inflation back down to 2 percent has a long way to go. What do you think about that while the White House celebrates Bidenomics? Yeah, I don't think that inflation is that big of a problem. In fact, mm. as, as the opening uh, just provided the data for us, right, we have been seeing cooling inflation trends for the last year. They are significantly uh, declining, especially energy prices, which uh, were the main uh, cause for inflation increases last year. So we are seeing moderation across the board. We also are seeing car prices declining. And uh, as you said, you know, food uh, has edged up a bit, but that mm -hmm. is also on a downtrend. Where we are seeing inflation is in services, you know, personal care, recreation, but the largest, the largest contributor 
to um, the inflation number uh, is the rent index. And so uh, housing continues to be expensive. Uh, rents are, you know, there's some discussion whether rents are peaking, but that is the big contributor. So now let's think about this for a moment. The Federal Reserve is trying to tackle inflation and yet uh, interest rates, in fact, make housing more expensive. Mm -hmm. so I think what we, we can say safely is that we should be thankful that despite the hikes that we have observed over the last year, inflation is moderating and the labor market remains strong. People are entering the labor force. The unemployment rate is still low at 3.6%. And there is we can go further. So, yeah, it, it sounds like from what you're saying, this policy that we have, which I think it was James Galbraith that says, you know, just raising interest rates and lowering interest rates as the only tool you have to address inflationary concerns is kind of like driving a car and all you can do is either put your foot on the gas or slowly take your foot off of the gas. But there's a lot of other things that go into driving a car well and even maintaining a car. Can we thank interest rate hikes at all for this cooling of inflation? I don't really think we can thank interest rates. Uh, I think uh, interest rates are intended to reduce demand. But what we understand about the inflation that we've observed in the last year is that it doesn't come from strong demand and strong spe spending. Even though the labor market has been improving, wages have not been increasing. And the Fed itself has been quite clear that its wages are not driving the inflation that we see. So um, the Fed has a kind of a mistaken identity problem when they think about inflation. Um, they tend to want to reduce demand, uh, purchasing power, spending. But in fact, inflation comes from the supply side factors, from the disruptions uh, from the pandemic, from the various shutdowns and the general adjustment of the economy uh, post-pandemic. You know, it's interesting that you, you brought up wages, because if you look at the Consumer Confidence Index, it is pretty high. It's the highest it's been in about two years now, yet wages haven't necessarily increased. Now, Europe, they're actually dealing with the same thing. What measures do you think are needed in order to change that? I mean, people are finding jobs, yet the jobs aren't correlating to higher wages. Yes, exactly. We are seeing... Uh, improvement in the labor market, but again, we want to take the longer view. Many people exited the labor force, and even prior to the pandemic, we still had pockets across the economy with elevated unemployment rates, and that is true today as well. Uh, the national picture looks great, but if you look at rural areas or even some metropolitan areas, we see high unemployment rates as high as six, seven, eight, even double digit unemployment rates. And so, uh, you know, we're going in the right direction, but not everyone is experiencing that kind of generalized improvement in labor market. And so um, jobs are coming online. They tend to be on the lower end of the wage spectrum. As I said, uh, there seems to be increased demand for personal services. The service sector is recovering post-pandemic, and that's where the jobs are. But we know that those are not the highly paid jobs. They tend to be um, low paid. They tend to be unstable, uh, part-time, uh, more, more precarious jobs. So we have these cross currents. Uh, we'd like to see this 
picture improve further and create more robust employment. Uh, but the Fed policy actually uh, does not support this uh, uh, this improvement. Right. And Jerome Powell on the floor of Congress, when being questioned by Warren about the number of people that his plan intended to make unemployed, people who are working right now, paying their mortgage and paying their bills, uh, it's not really a, a policy that they take, as Jerome Powell would say, which is a trade-off because price increases hurt working people. Uh, I understand job loss hurts working people, but he makes inflation out to be you know, the primary concern and we have to make this trade-off. But that's not a trade-off that the, the Fed makes explicitly with their policy just during periods of uh, inflation that's, that are unusual, right? Here we have this supply side inflation, but even in like normal times, as normal as we can have with an economy like this one, where we experience low unemployment, the Fed will take this policy of increasing interest rates to kind of cool off the labor market. This is something that I think they do to keep wages low. It's something that doesn't benefit working people. But can you say some more? Is is raising unemployment even or raising unemployment intentionally to prevent inflation from going up in normal times? Is that a good policy to have? I mean, I think if you ask the average person, they will say no, and they might scratch their head and wonder why economists are insisting on this rather damaging economic tool to fight inflation. So, um, you know, we have a two-prong problem here. The first one is that the Fed is trying to fight inflation by increasing costs. So things are already more expensive, but interest rates now are rising so that businesses are finding it more costly to borrow, to employ, to pursue uh, their activities and households are finding it more costly. So we are fighting fire with fire, but the ultimate intent of this policy is in fact to slow down economic activity, to slow down spending demand, uh, job creation, and indeed create more unemployment so that um, we reduce the incomes that are out there and thus um, reduce kind of the price pressures. It's, it's backwards, it's economically devastating. There are far better ways to fight inflation while maintaining full employment. But the Fed has this one blunt tool, uh, raising or lowering interest rates. And many economists are looking to the Fed to do something. They feel they must do something. And that's, um, that's all they have. Um, so, no, I don't think it's appropriate. I think it is. we are absolutely overdue for rethinking of, ma of macroeconomic stabilization policy, Fed policy, for good times or for bad. So, Professor, in terms of rethinking policy overall, we've had 10 straight increases thus far. Now, you've touched on housing uh, twice. What impact do you think these increases will have on the ability of everyday Americans, recent college graduates, to purchase their first home? I mean, traditionally, that has always been uh, considered the process of which you build and establish wealth in the United States, and yet we're finding individuals not able to either afford a home, the marketplace indicates that there are not enough affordable housing available, yet you really don't typically see that being a part of the national conversation. That, that's right. Uh, the homeownership has been a critical step for building wealth and, uh, you know, assets for a household. Now it's increasingly out of reach. Uh, we know that there is housing shortage in virtually every community in the U.S. Raising interest rates is making that problem worse as uh, mortgages are prohibitively more expensive. Um, we 
we see other problems that households are experiencing. We're seeing increasing cost of education. Uh, students are borrowing now at higher interest rates to get that uh, student loan and go to school. We know that medical bills are still quite high. And um, to the degree that medical debt has been increasing, that is uh, also becoming more expensive. So we do have structural problems. They don't quite show up in the traditional inflation numbers, but these are the key areas that are hitting households in their pockets that are making life more difficult. And that's uh, what we need to be thinking about, how to make housing more affordable, how to make uh, college education uh, more accessible and uh, uh, healthcare as well. Professor of Economics at Bard College and author of The Case for a Job Guarantee, Professor Pavlina Chernova, thank you so much for breaking this down with us. Social Security recipients got much welcome news this week. According to reports, Social Security update on Wednesday following the government's announcement that inflation cooled even more than last month. So historically, Social Security benefits saw their cost of living adjustment uh, decline with slower inflation, but in a turn of events, it's forecasted to go up. According to the Senior Citizens League, a nonprofit seniors group, the cost of living adjustment for them will be 3% next year, which is lower than a 40-year high of 8.7% cost of living adjustment in 2023, but above last month's estimate, with experts warning that this is an estimate and could change in the coming months. So this is really huge news. I think a lot of people are worried about Social Security right now, especially current Social Security beneficiaries, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of talk about Social Security being cut, thanks to Chris Christie, thanks to McCarthy, thanks to a lot of folks thinking these entitlements can and should be on the table simply because we see more people drawing than paying in. We currently have 2.7 workers for every one person drawing Social Security and projections saying that we'll run out of the payroll tax uh, and have to go into the trust at the Treasury to pay for Social Security, potentially having benefits cut significantly by 2033, 2032, in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so this is good for now, but I think people still have their hairs up. No, I think you're right, Jess. I mean, look, you're talking about 2033, Social Security will be insolvent. 2031, Medicare will be insolvent. And I haven't seen any indication, and you may disagree with me on this, but I haven't seen a serious indication, I'll put it this way, from Republicans and Democrats that there is some type of a bipartisan focus on the reality that many Americans, millions of Americans, we have paid into this thing in the next decade, more than likely will not be able to take out maybe even a fraction of what they put in. And so I wonder, Jess, if we need to start focusing on maybe a more private sector solution to this government-backed program because it's not working. Yeah, I would say it's it's not that it's not working because it's a public-run program. I would say it's it's not working because people who are in public office have made a deliberate decision not to fund Social Security. We've seen them increase defense spending in the hundreds of billions of dollars. The only difference between putting money towards Social Security would be that there is a trust in the, the U.S. Treasury where the legislation says the money should come from. It could be very easy for a budget to be passed that would allocate more funds to that trust instead of crediting the accounts of the Department of Defense. We're showing our moral priorities 
by spending in other places and not allocating money towards retirement. And I'm not saying that it needs to be funded in the same way we fund defense spending. We could very easily say corporations are profiting to the tune of billions of dollars off of workers' labor that would like to retire someday. You could pay for this with a corporate profits tax just as easily as you could press a button and credit the account the same way you do for the Department of Defense. And so it's a very clear moral priority to say we're going to fund these other things, but not retirement. We're going to bankrupt grandpa and grandma while we're making nukes and sending troops overseas. Those two realities are what we're experiencing in America. Those are decisions that are being made by people we elect to public office. And if you think they should be making a different one, I would agree with you. Privatizing retirement and having folks' uh, lives dependent on the stock market, the very thing that is incentivized by people profiting very high, exploiting labor, keeping wages low and prices high, I don't think that's a good model financially when it comes to how you run a monetary system. And also, not to mention, if the stock market crashes, do you want your retirement to be on the table? So I really think we have to change the way we just think about retirement fundamentally as a country. I think that's a fair point, but I think just in terms of China's aggression, we sort of have to put the money that we're putting towards our military technology and potential expansion because of that. But with that said, I mean, I think there's a different way we can look at this. And by privatization, I would at least at a minimum want to give the American people the option to say, hey, if you want to invest your own Social Security for your own retirement, then the government will not tax it. We will not take this out of your monthly, biweekly, or weekly check. We will allow you to invest this as you see fit. Because, for example, let's take if someone were to have invested in Apple 15 years ago. They would be incredibly wealthy today if they were retiring in the next couple of years. Let's look at Tesla, for example. Let's say maybe you're in your 40s and you decide that you want to buy into Tesla and some other technology stocks. In the next 25 or 30 years, I guarantee you'll see a significant benefit. Now, I, I do understand your point, Jess, of what happens if the market tanks. Then I think in that case, and we could perhaps have a government-backed subsidy, if you will, to sort of protect uh, the worker for retirement if such an instance were to occur. But in my opinion, to at least give people the option of choosing for themselves versus relying wholly on the government, I think would alleviate some of the problems that we see. I definitely don't think the government should be on the hook to back up uh, Wall Street if we see stocks go down and people blow their retirement on risky investments. I don't really see that as a viable solution. I think the money is much safer uh, when it's being invested in a trust at the Treasury and Treasury securities so that we have, you know, U.S. government backed bonds paying for people's retirement. I think that makes a lot more sense as a model. It's a lot more secure. We also see that we have public programs become much more popular when they're universal. If people want to invest some of their money in the private sector and they want to invest uh, in a Roth IRA or have a retirement fund otherwise, fine, they should absolutely do that. But I think paying money into Social Security is a really good model. And I think that perhaps a, a better way to set up that tax structure would be to have corporations pay in a proportion uh, of their expected wage or salary of the worker or pay a proportion of their profits into Social Security and retirement based on how many people they employ and what their profit margin is. I think that makes more sense as a model than to say, let's have everybody have the option to either pay into Social Security or invest privately uh, and then the, have the government back up that investment if things go south in the stock market tanks. I don't think we need a repeat of 2008 where we have the government bailing out 
uh, Wall Street if we have another financial crisis so our grandparents can retire. Many other countries simply fund retirement because they can afford to. The only constraint on affordability and crediting the accounts of beneficiaries is are there real assets they can go on to purchase when those dollars hit their account? So long as we keep production high enough that there will be goods for purchase and we're not in a situation where too many dollars are chasing too few goods, we are fine. And so we have a lot of options here. And by not exploring those options, it's pretty clear that the agenda explicitly is to privatize retirement and who does that benefit? Wall Street, financial executives, and the owners of America's biggest corporations, those are the very people that lobby Congress very much. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, I think it also benefits the individual, though, as well, Jess. And not every single person is going to go the private route. Uh, you mentioned bailing out big banks and other corporate businesses, but this wouldn't be a bailout of the big businesses if we were to have another 2008. It would be a bailout of the American people, which I think most people would probably say that should be the priority anyway from, from the federal government. And so I don't think giving people the option to say, you can decide for yourself where you want to put your money to ultimately plan for your own retirement takes away from those who may choose another option. Give the individual the power and authority to ultimately determine what their latter years of life will look like. And I think that's very empowering to, to tell Americans, hey, if you don't want to put your money in federally backed bonds where, for example, we can't even agree on the debt limit, for goodness sakes, when you think about foreign bonds, let's say China or another adversary decides that they no longer want to invest in those things, you could also potentially put retirees in jeopardy as well. So I'm willing to take my bets on the market over the past 100 years, U.S. stock market has shown uh, Jess to have created the most wealth in history. And I don't foresee that changing anytime soon. By having a, a public retirement program, you're not preventing anyone from investing in the stock market or removing their freedom to do so. Uh, I don't see it that way at all. And I think many people still do have private investments on top of expecting to draw Social Security. We don't have to have this structure be uh, a trust at the Treasury at all. We can simply have the Fed credit the account with the amount necessary to pay out benefits for all those who are drawing on Social Security. That's how every public program works. The fact that we are framing Social Security as if it is different so that we then now would have more people investing their dollars in a private retirement is something that only benefits America's biggest corporations. There's no reason for those dollars to be invested in the market versus us simply guaranteeing people's retirement according to the cost of living. There's no reason for it. The only reason would be because we have many people on Wall Street who are the owners of big financial institutions, who are the owners of America's biggest corporations, who would love to have more people investing that currently can't afford to make that risk. And so a lot of those people do end up relying on Social Security. It doesn't have to be structured the way it is. But public programs for retirement are ultimately better for workers who can't afford to, to make that risk with their investment in the private market. And it's better because it's guaranteed universal and can be adjusted according to the cost of living at the time of retirement. Look, Jess, I'm not against any program. I just simply believe in choice. And for the Americans who can take the risk, I think they should have the choice to put their dollars where they want as they plan their ultimate retirement. We'll be right back with more Rising after this. The Biden administration has announced a total of $39 billion in student debt relief 
for 804,000 borrowers. This is his last effort in student loan debt forgiveness after the Supreme Court struck down his plan to give $10,000 in student debt relief to low and middle income borrowers and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients last month, The Hill reports. The Education Department said today that the relief is being provided to income-driven repayment plans where the federal government cancels remaining balances for the borrower after they have made their payments for 20 or 25 years. The department said it will notify eligible borrowers in the coming days, according to The Hill. Jess, you know, I got to tell you, I have a different opinion on this from a lot of my conservative friends, and I have had a lot of fierce debates on this student loan forgiveness plan. And, and I certainly get and respect the opinion of, well, people have paid, what do we do for them? And my response to that has typically been, well, maybe we should give a tax credit for individuals that have indeed paid back their student loans. But for black Americans in particular, who typically have to borrow way more money than our white counterparts, this would have been a substantial blessing in terms of leveling the playing field to help black college graduates create and foster more wealth. You have a lot of black students who start college and who cannot finish because they can't pay. We don't often talk about that. And so, so there are a lot of individuals and communities of color in particular who really would have benefited from this. And so my hope is that we figure this out because I think people do need relief. And if we talk in terms of leveling the playing field from wealth disparities from black, white, Latino to white, we have to get to work. And this was, in my opinion, a, a, a plan in the right direction. Right. I think we get really pedantic when we talk about who has the authority uh, to do the forgiveness. Should it be coming from the Secretary of Education and the Department of Education? Should it be coming from Congress? Should it be coming from the executive branch? The debate really should be, is this the right thing to do in a, in a sense of fairness and justice? Is it the right thing to do economically for the country? And those two considerations, the answer is yes. It's absolutely fair because we saw skyrocketing tuition at the same point where we saw colleges and universities in the United States become racially integrated. This was an explicit plan. And if you go back and you read what a lot of Reagan advisors were saying at the time when they were talking about the growth in higher education in the United States, they were saying, imagine how dangerous an educated proletariat would be. And we really saw college attendance rise following the 2008 financial crisis. People didn't want to enter the job market because it was a bad one. And so they sheltered by attending universities and colleges over the next four years. Then we saw a lot of bankers, saw a lot of people start for-profit colleges and people who had universities already. We saw them really become predatory in nature in how they skyrocketed tuition without increasing the real value of education and then find a way to put working people and people who cannot afford college in a lifetime of debt. And so to set things right again, cancellation is the proper policy approach and perhaps even making some of the people who have profited off of the crisis they created pay for it. That would make a lot of sense. I think the tax credit as well for people who have already paid their loans off mm -hmm. is extremely fair. Mm -hmm. And bringing uh, higher education to the point where it's more attainable for the average person makes sense as well moving forward. I mean, the cost continues to skyrocket, Jess, and we haven't addressed it. And, you know, a lot of my conservative friends will say, well, sure, Michael, whose responsibility is it? to afford everyone a college education? Whose responsibility is it to afford someone to, to get training for a trade or, or an apprenticeship, if you will? And my argument always is it's our responsibility as a country. 
Now, you're probably wondering, well, why is that? Well, think about all the net negatives that we often talk about. We talk about skyrocketing crime. Education would certainly solve that problem. We talk about the wealth disparities. We know that a more competitive citizenry needs to have a strong, solid foundation in terms of education, whether that's in formalized process, college or university, through apprenticeship or through trade. We know that when people are more educated, they're able to make more money. Thus, they're able to make healthier decisions for their lives. Think about the implications just that that would have on our, on our health industry in terms of aging, in terms of being able to have a healthier, older population versus one that's costing us uh, almost a trillion dollars to take care of when you compare us to other countries. And so you look at the net benefit of affording every single person an education, again, whether it's through the formal process or a secondary process, the gains for the economy is beneficial. I was looking at one study from the Barbara Bush Foundation just that showed most Americans read at a sixth grade level. And they analyzed or estimated that that's costing us about $2 trillion, Jess, $2 trillion that could be pumped into our economy but it's not because we're not addressing education the way we should. And so in my opinion, this isn't Republican, this isn't Democrat, this isn't conservative or liberal. This is about making sure that the United States of America is in the best competitive space in the next 20 to 25 years. And the way to do so is to fix our education crisis. And if you look at minority communities in this country and you're concerned about crime, you're concerned about poverty, then give an opportunity for people in those communities to get an education so that they are competitive and can earn a quality wage. Yeah, it's good for the economy as a whole to have an educated workforce, people qualified to do their job that they're tasked to do. Mm -hmm. It's also makes society a better place to live in when you have an educated population. When I think about the current debates we have politically, a lot of them are centered around, should we have public goods? What is the government for at all? People came together and said, if we pool our resources together, we can have much better schools than if you or I, Sir Michael, just decided we're going to hire a teacher to teach our kids. This is a part of the benefit of living in a society. Adam Smith, who's considered the father of capitalism for some reason, is someone who theorized <laughs> that human beings became the dominant species on the planet because we learned to work together and accomplish more than we could separately. There are certain things that we can provide because we are all productive working members of our society. We can have roads to drive on. We can have good schools. We can have trade schools in addition to higher education universities. We can have a publicly funded retirement for people who want to retire after working for all of their lives. There are a lot of things that are now called into question. Why? Because there are a lot of companies and corporations who see, well, if we privatize health care, if we privatize education, if we privatize Social Security, we can make a lot of money off of it by charging people more than maybe they value it. Or maybe we value this so much we want to guarantee it for the people. It's good to have a market and have a free market. But there are some things that people value so much that we can afford to provide up as public goods that we all would like to get at a much lower price than we would pay in if we were paying a corporation that was trying to profit off of our consumption of it. There are some things that should just be guaranteed to live in a good society, and education is certainly one of them. No, I agree 100 percent. I mean, Jess, as I said, this to me isn't about partisan politics. This isn't a left or right issue. I think about China. China just pumped in, I believe, $250 billion, Jess, about two or three years ago, the Chinese government, that is, into higher education. While we in the United States debate whether or not we want to even afford the next generation of leaders, 
a proper education. How can you compete against the second largest economy in the world if they surpass us academically and just according to every metric? Mathematics, science, now writing, now even the arts, which may baffle some of our viewers. The Chinese, they're now surpassing us, Jess. I mean, if, if you look at where the United States ranks in terms of science and math, we're in the low 20s, some estimates, and in, 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 in the higher 30s. And so when, when you look at these metrics and numbers, you have to ask yourself whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, are our leaders making the right decisions in terms of making sure the best interests of this country in the long run is being put forth? Or are they more focused on interest groups or major corporations or major banks that back these loans that seem to be more interested in making a profit than the welfare of the student? Again, this isn't a partisan issue. We're talking about the future competitiveness of this country. And the minute we get into this left or right issue, Jess, I think we completely missed the boat. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to make higher education affordable. We need public universities to be something that's publicly provided in a similar way as K through 12 education is, in addition to trade schools for people who don't want to get a two or four year degree. That's just common sense. And the way this issue's currently been framed as there are a lot of people who would have liked to have the chance to go to college and then have all of their debt canceled, okay, those people should have the opportunity to achieve higher education and, and get a degree if they would like to. But also we need to do something about all of the people that have been the victims of price gouging on behalf of people who wanted to profit off of the student loan debt crisis. There's a word in economics for that behavior. It is price gouging when you have an increased demand for a good of service, and then the price for that good or service is increased without increasing the value or quality of that good or service, simply because demand is increased for something that is a necessity for people, which education is. That's price gouging. You can't do that. And to correct that predatory economic behavior, the government should step in and say, we are canceling student loan debt. Moreover, we could input, you know, windfalls profits tax on all of the people who have profited off of the student loan debt crisis. There are things we can do, set things right in the past and have a path forward. And the way this conversation has solely been around the legality when the Higher Education Act of 1965 very explicitly grants this authority to the Department of Education, it's, it's just unnecessary to have this argument as whether or not it's legal and instead have the conversation whether or not it's right and have Congress pass new legislation so that they do have the authority to set things right when it comes to the student loan debt crisis and the greater crisis around higher education in the United States. I mean, look, Jess, I'll say this before we go. If you're a conservative, and you're tired of dealing with rising crime, that's a big topic in the country right now. You're tired of dealing with drugs or the opioid pandemic. I, I looked at a comparative analysis from the Brookings Institute and the Conservative Heritage Foundation. And both of those institutes showcased uh, an educated populace makes better decisions. You're more than likely to not commit crime. You're more than likely not to commit a violent crime. You're more than likely not to find yourself addicted to medication or other types of horrendous drug usage because you're able to compete in the workplace. You're, you have the comfort, the financial security of providing for yourself and your family. We cannot get caught up into this left or right issue because the net benefit is for all of us. More rising after this.
Fox News star anchor Tucker Carlson and former White House advisor Neil Neil Patel are reportedly looking to start a new media company. The pair are seeking to raise funds to start the company that would, quote, potentially use Twitter as its backbone. This is according to The Wall Street Journal. The new company would be based on longer versions of the free videos Carlson has been posting on Twitter since his exit from Fox News, but would be driven by subscriptions, according to people familiar with the matter. Users of Twitter and other social media platforms would be able to watch shorter versions of his show, interviews, and documentaries for free, but would need to subscribe to watch them fully. The company will also add additional shows and hosts, the sources said. Carlson and Patel met when they were roommates at Trinity College in Connecticut, and in 2010, the two founded The Daily Caller, of which Patel is still head. The two are reportedly looking to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to fund their new company, which currently is unnamed. According to Puck News, Tucker's Twitter show has only been the tip of the iceberg as far as his future media endeavors go. And Jess, I got to tell you, I'm not surprised by this. I mean, when Tucker first put out that first video on Twitter, I remember texting a friend of mine who is an on-air talent at Fox News, anchors a show, and I said, this is going to be a huge pain in the side of Fox News. And he said, we'll see. Well, here we are about a month later. Fox News continues to suffer with ratings. They have tried everything possible to get Tucker to stop posting these videos on Twitter. He continues to persist. I think a huge portion of that audience will naturally gravitate to whatever he ultimately builds. Yeah, I think wherever Tucker goes, he'll have some following behind him. But I think subscription-based streaming, the last thing people need is another Netflix or another Hulu subscription. I think people will be hesitant. 70 million people watching his first show, Tucker Carlson on Twitter, Tucker on Twitter, that's huge, but it's also, it was free, and it was on a platform a lot of people were already on. There's a big barrier to entry when you're asking people to not only give some dollars over on a consistent basis, but come over to a new app, it sounds like. I don't know if he's going to garner the same audience he would that will, would rival Fox News if they expand this to be a larger production company and have an amount of free programming that makes it worthwhile for people to download the app without subscribing. Maybe then we would see this rival Fox News. I think just Tucker Carlson production company being in the same sentence raises everybody's hairs. Uh, I think it's likely that this will be significant. I'm just not sure how significant, given it's based in Twitter. Not sure what's going to happen there. We have Elon Musk still the owner. But uh, Linda Yaccarino, now the CEO, I'm not sure what those negotiations look like, but Twitter branching off into being a streaming platform is not something I saw coming. Yeah, look, I think it could be interesting. I mean, I think about Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire, and that's a subscription-based platform. I know many of the hosts are on that platform, and they are raking in the dollars, Jess. They're doing very well. And so I can see a combination of Twitter and maybe the, the Daily Caller combining some sort of way, maybe creating a, a new app where Twitter is maybe the, the, the leeway for the free content, which is what the Daily Wire is doing. Ben Shapiro's group is actually starting to do this now. They're removing a lot of the content from YouTube. They're going on Twitter. You can watch a few minutes, maybe three, four minutes of a show. And then there's a link that says, to watch more, click here. And according to some of Ben's tweets, they have seen that to great effect. So I think Tucker could actually follow that model and within a year or so, see a pretty robust app where people are willing to pay 20 bucks a month to watch his content. 
I think it honestly makes a lot of sense. I think Tucker Carlson was probably strapped by Fox News a little bit or mm -hmm. any major media company like that where you have a nightly show. It's pretty clear based on what we've heard that he did have some people influencing what he could say, what he could not say. He said he liked Twitter because it allowed him to have free speech. I think people like opinion-based journalism, not something that's polished material from a really big media company or a media mogul like Fox, where you have executives telling commentators what to, what to say and what not to say and what issues to weigh on and what issues to cover more or less. And so I think it's, it's good that people are moving towards that kind of journalism when it comes to political journalism. I think there is no neutral political journalism. You need to have people's opinions very explicitly stated. And so I think people like following folks that they trust. There are a lot of people that trust Tucker Carlson, even if he was influenced by Fox in some capacity. And so I think it's, it's a good model to have people follow hosts for their opinions. I think that we've seen companies like even YouTube uh, get pretty stringent about what content they'll put ads on, what content they deem appropriate for ad materials. And I think that's turned a lot of people off, including, you know, the Daily Caller and the Daily Wire. However, there is one benefit and that it's, it's free to watch if you watch an ad. There's a very low barrier to entry and a bunch of people are already on YouTube. So I'm interested to see how this plays out for Tucker and his base. I do think you're right that we could see a merger between Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson here. Yeah, I think that would be fascinating to watch. I mean, you're talking about two of the largest, most yeah. respected names on the conservative right. But, Jess, I think this points to a much larger problem, though, for the mainstream media in general, whether it's CNN, uh, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, and, and others. The fact that you have very talented individuals who are saying, you know, I'm not interested in working or operating within this media landscape anymore. I want to break free of these chains and be able to give my unabashed truth, my opinions, my thoughts, without risk of being persecuted or censored directly to my audience. And what you're starting to see, Jess, is more and more people are starting to do this. I mean, look at TikTok, for example. Oftentimes, I go to TikTok and I look at what people are saying about politics just to get an idea of what regular people are saying. And you have individuals, Jess, that are getting numbers that rival, and I hate to say this, some of the numbers that some shows on CNN are getting. And so I think to the point that you made, more and more people are looking to get their news from sources that they trust, where they know that they are beyond the wall of a media apparatus that's more than likely pulling the strings of their opinions. Right. There's the, on the one hand, the convenience. If you're already on TikTok, you're scrolling through the app, mm -hmm. something comes up that's a story you're interested in, you're much more likely to watch it there. There's definitely that side of it. It's convenient. Then there's this other aspect of people are getting sick of this very polished way of getting their news, uh, the traditional news style. I think many people are, are weary, uh, especially Gen Z. I'm talking about younger people, millennials even as well. We don't really like the traditional kind of, of nightly news that sometimes is on Fox, definitely on CNN, NBC, MSNBC. We just don't take to it. doesn't feel organic, doesn't feel natural. And so there are a lot of young people that want alternatives. But then there's also this aspect for people of any age 
where there's been a lot of mistrust in mainstream media that's been the result of how they've decided to cover stories, uh, what stories they've covered, what facts they've left out, what they've said about stories. And so now we're in this situation where there's a huge opportunity for independent media, simply a, a problem created by the way mainstream media has decided to, to run giving people the news, whether it's in print or it is in news, uh, in video format. And so I think we can't really blame these alternatives for coming up. I think mainstream media is to blame for people's exit from mainstream media, Tucker Carlson included, but also the audience as well. Yeah, look, I, I think Tucker realizes what everyone in this industry realizes, and that is that the days of Walter Cronkite are over. People would once upon a time turn on the local news to get an objective truth or fact about an issue, not a subjective one. They knew at that point in time, I don't have to know what Walter Cronkite's political views are. I don't have to know if he's a Democrat or Republican, if he likes Richard Nixon or if he doesn't like R Richard Nixon. I just know he's going to give me the facts based on reporting. Jess, I don't know if we can do that today. I don't know if I turn on a cable news or maybe even a local outlet, depending on who that outlet is owned by, whether or not I'm purely getting the facts without the opinion of the host or the opinion of the entity that actually owns that particular channel. And so I think a lot of people are saying, since I cannot navigate through the mess, through the noise, then I'm willing to go elsewhere to find news from individuals that I trust. And I think Tucker realizes that. And I think in the next year or two, Jess, we will see a lot of success from him. And I think others will also follow suit. Yeah, I think there's two sources of bias beyond including your opinion in what you're saying. There's what you choose to cover. There's a lot mm -hmm. going on. What you deem an, an important story is one source. It's it's a bias, but it's also, you know, people rely on journalists. They trust to make that decision. Bias is a, a word that has a negative connotation. What stories you find important tells us a lot about you as a journalist. Then you have what facts you choose to include out of all of the facts and details available. Those are two major sources of bias without any opinion. And even Walter Cronkite had some sort of bias based on those two factors. And so it makes sense that now people are really evaluating news media based on who do they trust? What facts would maybe they have included if they were looking into the story themselves? Nobody has time to investigate every story they're interested in. That's why they rely on journalists and hosts to do it for them. And so I think now we are in the space where people are following individuals and maybe Tucker Carlson's setting a precedent or maybe he's riding a wave that was definitely already rolling before he decided to leave Fox News. I mean, Jess, only time will tell. Can Tucker do what Megyn Kelly wasn't able to do, what Bill O'Reilly wasn't able to do? Give it a year or two, and we'll find out. More Rising after this. More legislative measures are being put forth that would put classified UFO-related records in the government's possession. According to the New York Times, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is backing legislation that would create a commission with broad authority to declassify documents about unidentified aerial phenomenon and other extraterrestrial matters. Schumer is expected to introduce an amendment to the annual defense bill. And so far, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle appear poised to support measures of this kind. Here to discuss the growing interest in Congress about uncovering what could be hovering in our skies is Mark Von Reinenkamp, opinion contributor for The Hill. Welcome, Mark. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Mark. So, so where's the alien, like a... man? I'm sorry, Jess. We got to let him pull out the alien. Yes. <laughs> you want to pull out an alien right now? Ooh, I wish I could. 
I wish I could, but sure, Michael, I'm going to have to uh, punt to Congress for that. <laughs> Go ahead, Jess. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it seems that a lot of folks have put the alien question in the camp of it's a matter of national security. And I'm in the camp of it's a matter of, of human curiosity and human interest. It exceeds just one nation's borders. So this seems like a step in the right direction. What do you make of these recent moves by Congress? Um, they're extraordinary. And, and to answer your question, Jessica, they're, they're, I think they're, they can be both. They can be matters of human curiosity and national security. But I want to maybe step back from the aliens and the little green men and, and make maybe two points. Um, what we're seeing now is remarkable bipartisanship. Again, we can separate all the talk of, of UFOs and aliens. We are seeing extraordinary bipartisanship on, on a topic. I can't, I don't know if you guys can think of a, another topic that has pulled together the various strains of, of American politics from, you know, make America great Republicans to more moderate, moderate Republicans like Rubio, and then Democrats like Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand, Harry Reid before he passed away. Um, so remarkable bipartisanship. And then secondly, I just want to quickly comment on the extraordinary nature of the language that we've seen in uh, this legislation, both the pending right now and, and, in, and last year and the previous years. Um, my, I'm of the opinion that Congress will not put language about potential reverse engineering of UFOs into federal law without um, some some good basis and some solid grounding to to include such extraordinary language. I mean, Mark, what do you make of some of the whistleblower testimony reports that we've seen? We've covered this here. A former uh, Air Force pilot saying that there is something out there. We've seen some reports of individuals who worked for a secret organization within the Pentagon that have argued we actually do have these aliens and we do have these spacecraft. I mean, is there any legitimacy to, to what we're hearing? Because a lot of people are following this stuff and are starting to think, well, wait a minute here. Is the government keeping something from us? That's a million dollar question, Sir Michael. Um, you know, I, I got to say, it, I think everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt and skeptically. But when you start putting together all of the data points and, and you know, you take an analytic perspective, um, it, things get really interesting because, yes, and I've talked to some of those uh, former Navy pilots who um, observe via radar or visually objects off the U.S. East Coast on a daily basis. Um, I don't, you know, Senator Rubio said this pretty pretty clearly i don't i don't see how you go from a you know a squadron commander or a wing commander to just suddenly making stuff up about um you know extraordinary events um to the whistleblowers and the others who have spoken again their their claims are extraordinary but when you start listening to what the legislators and the lawmakers who have, who have actually um either spoken with these individuals or been briefed on what they've said you know, they, they all say, and I just saw this yesterday, um, Mike Gallagher, a very, you know, broadly respected Republican, said, mm -hmm. you know, these claims should be taken seriously. Um, and, and not just because of the credibility of the individuals that are that are making the claims, but also um, because in, in Grush's case, the, the key whistleblower, he's represented by a former inspector general of the intelligence community. That is, a, he was an Obama-appointed senate confirmed high profile lawyer so these are not you know these are these are not individuals that would um back up extraordinary claims if, if there were not something to them 
What do you make of this commission coming out of Congress to have the authority to declassify these documents? Because I can see a world where someone doesn't believe that they have the knowledge necessary to fully understand the security concerns, especially understanding that a lot of UAPs could just be, you know, spacecraft that's that's human in form. It could be, you know, spacecraft that's non-alien uh, run. It could be, you know, maybe Russia or China, as we've reported on here, recreating some of the the alien spacecraft that they have grounded in their airspace. It sounds like the whistleblowers are saying we have just over a dozen having landed in the United States or in the position of the U.S. military. Uh, so what does this mean, really, having Congress holding the keys to what information is made public? A great question, Jessica, and, and I and I hate to disappoint you, but I, I have not read the actual language of this legislation yet. But from my understanding, from from folks that I've spoken with who have the kind of some inside baseball on this, it, it is remarkably comprehensive. It's detailed, um, so I, I'm going to punt a little bit. I'd like to see what the actual legislation says, but but to the best of my understanding, it's modeled on um, a 1992 law to to kind of bring forward all of the records associated with the JFK assassination, which is a fairly, it's a landmark piece of federal legislation. So um, I think it's extraordinary. It's a, it's a remarkable step to see Senator Schumer, the, the Senate Majority Leader, get involved. Um, so I'm going to punt a little bit, but I, I do, I'm curious to see what that language actually looks like. Merrick, let me ask you this question. Congressman, uh, Republican Congressman Tim Burchett out of Tennessee uh, recently stated he had an opportunity to look at the classified UFO footage, and he said it's real. And there is definitely something out there. Are we prepared for whatever this thing is or these things are? I mean, how serious are our lawmakers taking this? How serious is the military apparatus taking this? I think lawmakers are remarkably serious. And we can see that, in the, again, in the language that we've seen over the last couple of years. The bipartisan language has been, again, extraordinary. We're talking about multiple dozens of pages of federal law devoted to this. So they're, I think lawmakers are extremely serious. I think elements of the government are kicking and screaming and they're resisting this. Uh, I don't know if maybe that's maybe that's nefarious. Um, you know, I worked in the government and the vast majority of people that I worked with um, were, were good folks that, that have, you know, the, the best interests of the country and, and national security at, at heart. Um, and, and there's certainly I'm sure I know there are people, individuals in the government that are curious about this topic. Um, so it's a mixed bag on on um, you know, on, on how the government is, is is treating this. It's again, it's it's not a monolithic institution, but I can tell you with certainty that Congress is, is dead serious about understanding this and getting to the bottom of whatever this is. With these whistleblowers in both the military and intelligence community speaking out about UFOs or UAPs, you've done a lot of reporting on what they have said. What do you think the response from the public is generally like? Are people ready to know about potential extraterrestrials interacting with people on Earth or even visiting Earth? So it is a that is the million dollar question. And I, I to be honest, I, I, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. I, I can report on I can talk to pilots. I can report on what, what Congress is saying. I think that's a deeper philosophical question that um, I, I guess I'll, I'll answer it this way. Let's. Let's see how the next few weeks go in terms of hearings. Let's see what, what the congressional language that Senator Schumer, um, when he releases it, when it comes out, let, let's see where this all goes. And, and maybe we could have that discussion in a month or two, in a year from now. Um, let's, let's, let's let the process play out. And it's a great question. I'm not trying to shy away from it, but 
Um, I'd like to learn a little more before going into that direction. So, Merrick, for people who are interested in this, when can we expect the next hearing? Yeah, to, to the best of my understanding, uh, I saw a report yesterday that um, it, we're looking, looking at the last week of J July um, for the House Oversight Committee to have a hearing. And I, I understand there are going to be about a, about a half dozen witnesses who will testify. Um, I don't know who they are. Um, I suspect there will be some some folks that we may have seen on 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 News Nation and, and on on various reports, um, but I don't know that for a fact. So again, last week in July, House Oversight Committee, um, and that'll be managed by Congressman uh, Burchett and and Congresswoman uh, Luna. Let me ask you this really Mark quickly, Mayor. Before really quickly before we let you go. On a scale of one to 10, for people who are watching this, because I have to ask you this question, do they exist or don't they? Who's they? <laughs> well, I guess I'm more rising after this. <laughs>I mean, Jess, you're talking about a third of the country. I mean, is James, and I know James personally, but is he right? Yeah, I think he's right there. I think it is a monster you have to feed every night. I think that goes for most cable news, however. Fox is a bit of a different beast. I think when it came to January 6th, they did not want to believe that these were people who wanted to believe it was outside infiltrators. They wanted to believe it was Antifa. They didn't run coverage, oftentimes, of the January 6th committee hearing on Fox News. They did not want the truth when it came to this. Now, is that a decision Fox made deliberately? Is this a kind of reverse causality thing where you can blame the viewer for not wanting it, not wanting to be ready for it, or you can blame the making production decisions at Fox for not covering it? I mean, Jess, look, I, I just did a quick Google search here. Just quick Google search. You got to love technology. Uh, a poll that came out just a couple months ago, more, a little more than half of Republicans do not approve of what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And so while I respect James, I think he's talking about a, a very small, marginalized percent of Republican conservative-leaning individuals in the country, because clearly the vast majority said, hey, we don't like what we saw. That wasn't okay. That wasn't acceptable behavior. Uh, yet, I think it's the appearance that, which I don't really like, that a lot of outlets make it appear that it's all Republicans who approved of what happened January 6th. All conservatives approved and advocated and supported what happened January 6th. And that just simply isn't the case. Yeah, I mean, I don't 
think Fox News is a, a news network that's going to make decision based decisions based on how you know the typical voting Republican or registered Republican is voting. They make decisions about what performs well with their audience. And so if they run some programming on January 6th that's factual and it's not performing very well and they're seeing viewers drop off, that's what they're making decisions on. And so Fox has no obligation to cater towards Republicans as a party or as an audience. If they're seeing their viewers don't want January 6th content, I can see them just deciding, all right, we're not going to cover the January 6th committee hearing. We are going to run programming of commentators casting doubt on the realities of the situation and saying it was Antifa infiltrators at the Trump rally. Uh, that's a decision Fox News could make. I can also see executives at Fox intentionally wanting to sow a narrative uh, of what went down on January 6th being outside infiltrators and not wanting uh, to air live coverage and commentary of the January 6th hearings. I can see that absolutely being the case. Sometimes we saw, you know, the January 6th hearings on Fox News with the volume so absurdly low that people would intentionally turn off uh, the, the channel or change the channel, but they wanted to say they were being non-biased by running coverage of it. I think there's a lot of games that go on. Are they making decisions for their viewers or are they making decisions based off of what they want their viewers to believe? I think it goes both ways with a news network like Fox. I mean, look, I think when you look at uh, this cross-tabulation of this poll that's mentioned in a Washington Post article that came out last year, and this is where it gets really fascinating here, Jess. So, a little more than half of Republicans disagree with the violence, but half think the actual protests were legitimate. And, and, and I think if you're a Fox News executive and you're looking at surveys like this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, while a huge percent of our viewers didn't like the violent aspect of it, that same percent believes that it was indeed legitimate for individuals to be there protesting. And so I think if you recognize that, then they are going to, to some effect, want to placate to where that audience is. Now, how far you go, I think, is up for debate. But it is clear that at least some Republicans say, hey, if Americans want to protest something peacefully, they can. And when you cross the line of violence, then that's where you see a lot of people saying, wait a minute, that's a bridge too far. And I think from Fox's perspective, they're looking at this data, trying to figure out, well, where do we as a news outlet go in terms of telling this story? How much do we report on this? And what version version of the narrative, if you will, do we report to, to, to our viewers. But on the flip side, yes, I, I do understand the critique of saying, well, don't you have an obligation to tell the complete story and allow your audience to arrive to some conclusion on their own? But then my counter to that would be, do any network you follow that script of really sort of being completely objective in terms of how they report on certain stories? or? If there's a story they like, they report on it from their perspective. And if there's a story they dislike, they over-report on it. And so maybe Fox went too far. But I don't think they're doing anything different or unique from what other outlets do to a lesser extent. I think they're absolutely doing something different and unique. And I think that's why they exclusively <laughs> had to pay out nearly a billion dollars because they were spreading election lies following 2020. No other network had to do that. And so Fox certainly, following the 2020 election, did have coverage that was a bit different from other networks in that sense. And it brings us back to what journalistic integrity is, right? Do they have a duty to cover the largest committee hearing we're having in Congress? Maybe, maybe that's debatable. Maybe they'll say you can turn on C-SPAN if you want to watch that. We're going to cover something else. But they explicitly aired posts echoing lies about what happened in the 2020 election, making it seem like there was fraud, making it seem like Dominion, 
uh, was complicit with that election fraud. And so it was dangerous programming that I think sows some mistrust in our democratic process uh, when we already have a problem with democracy in this country. And so I don't think that was helpful. And I don't think that that was good reporting on Fox's part. And I don't think it was a good decision for the executives to allow their hosts to unchecked say those things. And when it comes to January 6th, they also spread misinformation when it came to their reporting on the insurrection, what a lot of their opinion journalists were saying. And so I would say they're unique in that. We don't see any other networks kept paying out nearly a billion dollars because of misinformation they spread on their no, network. No, that, that, that's fair. And I, and I think that goes to my point of, of, of saying, well, maybe they went a little too far. But I think Fox... Uh, Jess will probably agree that, although they haven't necessarily publicly acknowledged this, they did settle. And we know a settlement, for the most part, you kind of acknowledge some level of guilt in something, or you're just trying to completely get rid of something because you don't want to deal with it. In this particular case, I think Fox looked at the results, looked at the case and said, you know what, it's better for us to settle with 700 plus million dollars than to potentially go to court, and this gets a lot worse than what we expected. But Jess, I have a, another perspective I want to throw in here. What responsibility, and maybe this ties into what we discussed earlier about education, what responsibility do we have as individuals to have more discernment, if you will, in the information that we watch, that we read, that's being fed to us, or is the obligation solely on the outlets? I think it's a good question. I think Carvel made a good point in that it's a beast that you have to feed at some point. You tune into Fox News, maybe you like it, maybe you think it's trustworthy, maybe you didn't get a super high quality of education in America's fine public schools, and maybe you don't have that, <laughs> right? What, what obligation do we have as a nation to provide quality education so people can make that decision for themselves and not rely on corporations to be responsible in what information they feed people? I think when people have a taste for that kind of flagrant and sometimes hateful reporting, uh, and they want more of it. I think James Carville was, was fair in, in calling this a, a beast that needs to be fed. What responsibility do people have to have discernment about what they consume? I would say you, you do have a responsibility. But when you talk about a media company that's the size of Fox News and they're covering mm -hmm. an attempted insurrection, I think the responsibility falls on them to give some accurate reporting and maybe shift that polling so that people realize this was a violent insurrection and was undemocratic. And if you want to live in a democratic country, you probably don't actually support what happened on January 6th. Yeah, I think the road ahead for Fox Jess is going to be really, really tough. And as I said, I think outlets, generally speaking, uh, tell stories from a perspective that benefits them when they like that particular story and overcover cover stories they dislike. But I would agree with you in terms of how far you go in, in that regard, really makes a difference between paying nearly a billion dollars, Jess, and not paying nearly a billion dollars. And in that regard, I think you're right. More rising right after this. A suspect in the 10-year-old Gilgo Beach serial killings case in Long Island, New York, was taken into custody Friday morning. According to WPIX-TV News, a senior law enforcement official confirmed the arrest. The alleged serial killer, who has been identified as Rex Hewerman, is a 59-year-old married architect at a New York City firm and was arrested after being matched to DNA. This is according to sources who told the New York Post on Friday. 
Per the latest reporting, investigators haven't yet revealed when or how the suspect first came on their radar amid the long-running murder probe, and it wasn't immediately clear where the DNA was obtained to build the alleged killer's profile. An investigation to capture the culprit responsible for the killing spree started after the remains of at least 10 bodies were found in a three-mile stretch near Girgo Beach between December 2010 and April 2011. Here's News Nation correspondent Sloan Glass reporting on the matter. Let's watch. Yes, morning. We're expecting a press conference here at the sheriff's office later today around 3 or 4 p.m. Eastern. We also have cameras set up at the courthouse in case that suspect makes his way in. This is all developing this morning, a major breakthrough, as you've said, that police have been working on, confounded by for more than a decade. This, this serial killer, the Long Island serial killer's first victim, could date back to 1996, or as we've recently learned, even earlier. He has taunted victims' families and police. And then this morning, authorities swarming the area, a residential block in Massapequa Park, just west of Suffolk County, where most of the 11 sets of human remains connected to the Gilgo Beach murders were found. This map shows the three-mile-long stretch along a scenic coastal road in Long Island, New York, where the victims were discovered between December 2010 and April 2011. The well, I mean, this is a really scary story, Jess, when you think about it, because if it's true that Hurman is the alleged culprit, this guy has been an architect, going to people's homes, going to business establishments, and then we find out potentially he's been on a killing spree for nearly 30 years now. I mean, that's scary stuff. It reminds me of the BT, a BTK killer, uh, Dennis Rader. And I remember that story in part because one of the things that stood out to me was that this guy was a deacon in the church and killed people for two or three decades. A deacon in the church. I mean, it just seems like a story that you can't, you can't make up. Yeah, a really shocking story. Uh, we covered a story not so long ago on having DNA evidence from Ancestry.com lead to someone being arrested in a murder case that was unresolved. So very curious what went down here. Where did the DNA come from that they got from Hewerman to, to attach him to these cases that are over 10 years old? It's just really shocking uh, to have an arrest in a case that that is this old. Now, who he was as a person, I mean, we've seen a lot of guys become serial killers who live a yeah. double life, have a normal life, married, kids, stable job. But a lot of people who were his neighbors did say that his, his house was not kept well, that he seemed like a businessman, seemed very successful, but his yard remained unkempt. So they had some questions about him, never got to know him as a neighbor, and were shocked to find that the person living across the street was in fact uh, an alleged serial killer. Just really shocking information. And a case uh, that's an interesting one also, because it's similar to cases in the past of Steve Wright or Gary Ridgway, in that a lot of these victims were actually uh, sex workers. And of course, mostly women, nine women, a toddler and a man. Uh, so just a really shocking case. And his wife showing up to the courthouse, to me as a woman, is shocking as well, always, when you have the spouses of people accused of these heinous crimes showing up to the courthouse in support. Yeah, I mean, I think you do see a consistent theme, Jess, and serial killers going after people that they think most of society has sort of forgotten about. I mean, remember Jeffrey Dahmer, 
uh, went after mm -hmm. mostly men of the LGBT community, mostly men of color. And at the time, during the, the 80s, you know, no one really cared about that particular group. You had the AIDS, HIV crisis going on. And so it sort of created a perfect storm for him to get away with so many murders. And fast forward potentially to this guy. We don't know necessarily if he is the culprit or not. But you have a case going back potentially to 96, maybe even before 96, typically going after women that most of us don't think much about. Most of the public opinion on sex workers, as you know, Jess, is pretty negatively for the negative for the most part. And so I'm not surprised that if he is indeed the individual behind these murders, that he went after a group of people that most of us just typically don't think a lot about in our society. And, and it's that con continuous pattern with serial killers going after the least of these. But I, but I think, in my opinion, what it shows, Jess, is that we probably need to start to pay more attention for people who find themselves in types, in the sort of work of sex working or, or maybe drugs, or whatever the case may be, where they find themselves dealing with people who could potentially lead to harm, maybe even taking their lives. And I think if we were to put more of a spotlight on this type of work, then maybe it would be harder for serial killers to get away with killing these people with such ease. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a, a good approach to criminalize, you know, drug use and sex work. I think we have a tendency as a society to paint people who are doing things that are labeled criminal acts. Whenever you give someone then the label of criminal, we see them as kind of less than human. And that's a big problem. And it puts people who are people who use drugs, people who do sex work to make a living, uh, it puts them in a category where they're not as protected by the law. And it, it does put us in a situation where uh, they are more likely to be the victims of murder, to be the victims of violent crimes. Uh, there's a statistic out there that uh, people who do sex work in the United States have higher levels of PTSD than people who have served in the army. And so violence against women is a huge problem in the United States. And perhaps there's a better solution other than criminalizing sex work uh, to deal with this situation. And I think criminalizing sex work puts sex workers in a more dangerous position. Even if you, you don't like it, you don't support it for whatever reason, when you think about it happening and the consequences of it being criminal, is this something that actually reduces the prevalence of whether it's mm -hmm. drug use or sex work in, in our society to put people in jail and punish them because of it? That's a, that's a consideration we need to make. Well, look, Jess, I'm, I'm not sanctioning <laughs> sex work here personally, but I do believe that we need to put a, a bigger spotlight on individuals who do partake in that type of work, because as you said, the statistics are pretty clear uh, that women, uh, men, uh, members of the LGBT community, such as transgendered individuals, do have a higher propensity of violence against them. And I think it's in part because, again, most of us in society look down on individuals who partake in that type of work. And so it's easier for people like human men, if he is the killer, to take a life, to abuse these types of individuals. And I think that has to change whether or not you agree with the type of work or not. I don't, but I, I am a human. I do believe in morals, and morals sort of define and dictate that I care about people, even if I don't agree with the life decisions that they ultimately make. And I hope other people see this the same way. This is a, a learning lesson, I think, uh, Jess, and an opportunity for us to truly talk about a much broader picture outside of serial killing and the murders, which are indeed important, but also to figure out how do we prevent this from happening? I mean, think about this, Jess. 
Thousands of women across this country disappear every single year. We don't really talk about that often. We haven't seen many solutions to address that. A lot of members of the uh, trans community are oftentimes brutalized, oftentimes killed. We've talked about it, but we haven't really figured out ways to address it. So again, my hope is that the victimization that has occurred here leads to a broader conversation that can ultimately save lives down the line, regardless of how I feel about the life decisions that these individuals have made. Yeah, I think cases like this uh, make it time for us to revisit this stigma we have around violent crime in the United States, especially considering the political narratives that it tends to be uh, men of color that are the perpetrators of violent crime in the United States and our undue focus on gang violence when we see overwhelmingly serial killers being white men, mass shooters being white men. I think it's time to readdress that stigma and really consider who is committing the most violent and heinous crimes in the United States. I think it's time to revisit that stigma and, and question it. No, like, I, I think you're right, but what it also tells us, Jess, is that crime isn't, re violent crime isn't regulated to people in poverty. Here is someone who's an architect, presumably making a pretty substantial amount of money from everything that I could find on the internet about him. I mean, he had an office in New York on Fifth Avenue. And for those of you who are not familiar with Fifth Avenue, well, let me tell you, it is an expensive place to have a property. And so whether you're black, white, rich, or poor, clearly, Jess, we're all susceptible to the worst aspects of the human condition. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Unfortunately, that's it for us today. This has been really fun, Michael. No, Jess, this has been absolutely fun. It's been a pleasure. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available on podcasts wherever you download them. I'm sure Michael Singleton. Take care.